0: Thank you, Floyd Millie, for reminding us of the firm foundation. We do try to build on the rock. That's the foundation that we build on here at New Covenant Fellowship, and that is Jesus Christ. Well, I see um, everybody uh, got in their boats and rowed their way to church this morning. I appreciate that. We had quite a bit of rain. It's a little slick out there, a little sloppy. Um And we do want to remember, keep in our prayers, those that were were not so fortunate and people not just lost roads, but lost some homes, cars were floating down uh, rivers and streams and so forth. It's a great privilege to be able to talk to the Lord, sovereign God of all, and to know that even things that are way out of our domain, way out of our realm, he has a way of working through and bringing beautiful things out of dust bringing beautiful things even out of the floodwaters. Well, I trust that he will bring something beautiful out of his word this morning. We are in the book of the Bible that has a message about the king and his kingdom, and that's Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And we're in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Matthew fast forwards from the birth of Christ about 30 years to just before the ministry of Christ. And I know... We want to hear from this king who is promised by God to be sent to the world. And you know, whatever he says, it's going to be good and it's going to be powerful. And so I'm kind of on the edge of my seat to see what Jesus will say. But before Jesus speaks, before he begins officially his ministry, God has another word for the people. He has another man that he wants to speak, and that is the herald to the king. And we know him as John the Baptist or John the baptizer. And in part one, we looked at John the Baptist, this man, we found out that he was rather uh, different, is a kind way to put it, uh, unique. Just about everything about him was unique, his birth, um, his ministry, really his message, and we'll get a little bit of that this morning. His message is unique, and um, his diet was unique, his clothing was unique, just the whole way he did life, his mindset was really countercultural. And quite unique for that day in time. Where he ministered was unique. Not just out of town or on the outskirts of town. But his ministry was in the wilderness. And when the Bible uses that term wilderness. And John Razima talked a little bit about it, um, wilderness looking areas this morning. Th- this is rocks and sand wilderness. That's about all there is out there. Very little greenery. And that's where God planted this unique person, this herald to the king. The idea is that in order to hear what this man has to say or to hear what God has to say through him, you have to remove yourself from the establishment, establishment. remove yourself from the cultural norms and come out here in the wilderness and then hear the voice of God. And his whole lifestyle, really, the the, the simplicity of it, just the basicness of it, was a rebuke against uh, the worldliness. It was a rebuke against the love of wealth and and plushness and richness and comfort and ease and a beckon for God's people to come once again and, and get rid of the worldly clatter so that you can hear the voice of God and live for the living God. So we looked last time at this unique man or the man. And today we're going to look at the message and the ministry of this man. So let's look at chapter three in the book of Matthew. And we're going to once again read the first 12 verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jeremiah and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn. With unquenchable fire. So you hear word that there's this man, a prophet of God, perhaps out in the wilderness. And he is preaching. He is crying out. He is proclaiming. He has something to say from God. So let's just say you made your way out there into the wilderness. You decided to go. What would you hear him say? What is this wild man's Message, if you will. We see it in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the crux of his message. A very short uh, characteristic that many of today's preachers don't have. Very short, to the point message. Short service. You come out, one opening song. There's the message, two points. Then, uh, some baptisms, then praise, prayer, and announcements, then gone. You're back home. You're back to your town. So this is what the herald is saying. This is what the man is saying whom God sent to prepare all people, his people, all people, to be able to embrace the king, to be able to receive the king, but really just to be able to be ready to prepare the hearts For the king. So, like the heralds of the day in ancient times, kings had heralds and they had two basic objectives or jobs. One is just to be the announcer. The king is coming. You know, your king, the king that you revere, the king that you hold in high esteem, the one that reigns and rules over you, he is coming. And then, secondly, so prepare the road, prepare the way in a practical sense. If there's anything, you don't want anything to stop the king from calling among you. He's a good king. In this case, it is the Baptist is telling them to prepare the hearts. That's how you get ready for the king. So that's what the king is requiring from them. That is the message. That's how you get ready. He demands from the people repentance, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, as the other gospel writers put it. It's basically the same thing. It is at hand. It is among you. Well, why would he have this message? Why would this be a demand of the king in order for people to be prepared isn't our purpose to glorify him isn't our purpose to praise him and to live quorum Deo before the face of God so that we can behold him and that we can be comforted by him absolutely but it's interesting that the very first words of the message of the king of preparation is to repent, and the idea is that before those things can take place, there's one other thing that has to take place. It's an absolute priority in preparation, and that is repentance. That is getting your heart ready to even receive Him at all. So don't don't uh, join the choir and don't join the ministry teams and get on board and sing the praises without this one thing taking place first. And that is there's something wrong in our hearts. There's something that stands before our face in the face of God. And it is a heart that is not ready because it's filled with sin or more specifically unrepentant sin. And before we can join the ministry team and the choir and and just jump on board with this this uh, kingdom of heaven that is at hand, we have to repent. And so the herald. Reminds them of that. He speaks for God and says those words. Before you come before him, repent of your sin. In chapter 4, Jesus, just to get a little ahead, in chapter 4, Jesus is going to begin his ministry. And he also preaches. Now, not so much out in the wilderness. He's going from town to town, village to village. And he preaches. And guess what his message is? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's the same exact thing. So if you say, well, I went out to the wilderness and uh, John talked about repentance and he really hurt my feelings and he stepped all over my toes and told me I wasn't ready for the kingdom of God or the king. So I'm going to go out to this other guy, this other guy I've heard about, Jesus. I want to see what he has to say about God and the kingdom. And so you go out to Jesus and you hear his message and you hear the same thing. God is speaking to you once again. Repent for the kingdom of God. Is at hand. So if we want anything to do with this king. If we want anything to do with God. That's what we have to do is repent. Later on Jesus will tell us very clearly. That the reason is we can't have two masters. We can't have two kings in one heart. There's not room. Somebody's going to suffer. We're we're, we're really only able the way God created us. I think the message is, is that as humans. We're able to really only devote ourselves to one thing. And because God is the one and only true God and king, the message is give your heart to him fully, devotedly. And so he says, repent. The word repent in the Greek is metanoia. You've heard it before. And it means to change directions. It means to do a 180. So we we used to think this way, but now we think this way. Or well, we used to be headed in this direction or our wills used to desire and long for these things. But now I'm no longer longing for these. I'm thinking on these things. I'm wanting these things. I'm longing for these things. And of course, we turn from the world and sin and we are to turn our hearts, our minds, our will, our emotions, everything to the king of kings. A Virginia boy, John Brodus. Never heard of him until I was looking at uh, commentaries on Matthew. Uh, He was a Baptist, raised in Virginia, went to UVA, became a Greek scholar in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and professor. He says, wherever this Greek word is used in the New Testament, the reference is to changing the mind and the purpose from sin to holiness. It implies sorrow for sin, but that's not what it means. It means to turn around. Repentance. It goes beyond the sorrow. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he gives us a little teaching about sorrow. And he says, there's such a thing as a worldly sorrow. And a worldly sorrow, you see the same things and you have some of the same emotions, and a worldly sorrow can be a sorrow that truly cries real tears. And there's true hurt and pain and grieving over someone we've hurt or grieving over our transgressions. But the, the difference in a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow is that it stops with the tears. There's no change. You feel bad. You feel absolutely Terrible gut-wrenching over your transgression, your sin, but you never actually turn away from it. You just stay there in it and then you feel bad for it again and then you feel bad over it again and there's lots of tears, but there's never a change. See, repentance is necessary. The change is necessary. Or all that gut-wrenching sorrow Is not honoring to the Lord. Just we're stuck. So the message is turn from what you are. Of course, some messages like this are a huge hit, right? Everybody wants to be told you're not ready for the king because you have sin in your heart. And the kind of life you're living is is offensive to him. And you need to turn from your ways. There's something in our human nature that doesn't like to hear those words. That's what John said. That's what Jesus said. If you weren't satisfied with that, you don't like having your toes stepped on, you could say, well, then I'm going the to I didn't like John's message. Too harsh. Not loving enough. I didn't like Jesus' message. He said the same thing. Repent. I'm going to wait for the next man. I'm going to wait for the next big message and preacher. Come along. Well, he came along after death and resurrection of Christ, and that would be Peter at Pentecost. And guess what the message of Peter was at Pentecost? Repent and be baptized. So if you were alive during that whole time, all of those ministries, that is what God was saying to his people at that time. Yes, the kingdom is here. And the way you prepare for it is to repent. Some people say, well, do you have to? to be baptized in order to get to heaven? No. You don't have to be baptized in order to get to heaven. If you're able, it's a it's an obedient act to the Lord. Well, do you have to repent in order to get to heaven? Absolutely. Isn't that the message? Heaven's here. You're not ready for it because you have not repented. The way you prepare your heart for the kingdom of God and for heaven is through Repentance. See, that's on us. That's on us. That's where we have to take responsibility for our sins, things that we are culpable for. We can't blame anybody else and turn away and say no to sin and yes to God. Love God more than we love our sin. So that's John's message. And basically he's saying as it stands now, folks, you're not ready. You're not ready. So repent. Don't be baptized without repenting. Repent. Don't just pick up and start joining ministries and joining the praise band and doing the things that you know you should do until you repent because the heart hasn't changed. See, we we can take on new things that look good and are good, but we still bear within us that offense. Because God's a holy God, we have to see our hearts as he does. And it's a heart that is against him. And how can we be against him and for him at the same time? So that which is in the way needs to be removed. There were some that readily accepted this, as we will see. There are others, not so much. Next week, we'll talk more about them. We'll talk more about the fruit of. That keeps with repentance. We need to hear more about it. Well, the crowd there that he called snakes were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you'll remember we spent a little time with them. The Pharisees are uh, the the legalists of the day. The legalist theologians and um, the Sadducees were the liberal theologians. Didn't believe all that the scripture taught them. And John's message was really a slap in the face to them. They didn't think they needed to be changed because they came thinking we are the perfect examples of what it would look like to be the people of God. And the reason we are is because we do the things that God asks us to do. We serve in the temple. Uh, we dress the proper way. Um, we are also we ha- we got the godly heritage. We're in God's city. We are doing all things God. And so as a promised offspring of Abraham. We you can't get any closer to God than we are. And John says, actually, you're snakes. If you wanted to get not man's perspective, but a heavenly perspective on the situation. There's a lot of evil in your hearts. There's a lot of change that needs to take place and any change that took place within their lives only left them still in the manure pile. See, we we can we can exercise godly sorrow and change a few things and yet still stay right in our sin and never really repent. It reminds me, I used to work on a farm in Maryland. Had cows and pigs and <clears throat> a lot of different things and the it was a bona fide pig pen. It was probably uh, just about the size. It's just a little smaller than this sanctuary. Probably about half the size of the sanctuary. And there was real pig slop in it. You know, we would... Scrape it out and put new fresh straw and so forth. But there were a lot of sows, a lot of pigs. And so they just, you know, they'd eat and they'd fill it right on back up. And it was in need of cleaning. Well, there was this young guy that lived close by. And he always liked to hang around the farm, this young boy, and, and be a part of the, <clears throat> be a farm hand. Um, and he was, uh, he was an interesting young guy. He was a little slow. And um, he was all heart, just all heart. Well, this particular day, he's going to help us clean this pen. And so the first thing we have to do is get all the, p- the pigs out of it so we can get the scraper blade and so forth in there. Uh, and he's, you know, he, the all-heart gung-ho guy wants to be a part of everything. So he gets in, he's got his muck boots, and he gets in the pen. He wants to be the one to drive them out. So he's driving the pigs out. And the muck is so deep and runny and sloshy that it starts to fill his boots. And so I... I um, Watching him, he's the only one in there, and uh, <clears throat> he he notices this, and he kind of stops in the middle of the pen, and I think by this time all the pigs were gone and and he balances himself up and he picks one of these boots off his feet and he sure enough they're slopping it, so he empties it. He's kind of balancing himself, doing a great job, and he puts it back on, so now it's empty, and then he's like this because he realizes. I have to step right back into this. And he steps right back into it. And he's still in the manure pile. No matter how clean he is able to get, he's still in the manure pile. You have to remove yourself from that in order to really be clean. There's like this message here where John the Baptist is saying, all this stuff you're doing, you're still in your stink. There's never been a change. You can't get clean in the manure pile. And the way you get out of manure pile is... By humbling yourself, by seeing your heart as God sees it. See, they thought that they were saved. They thought they were in the right place, the right time, the holy land, the holy city with the right heritage. And John the Baptist is saying what you need is conversion. You're lost and you need actually to be converted to be a part of this kingdom it is at hand and in fact if if you're not if you don't repent the axe is at the root I mean it's we would say uh, locked and loaded God's judgment is locked and loaded the fingers on the trigger or the fuse has been lit it's close it's 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 an anytime kind of thing and if you don't repent you will feel the burn of the unquenchable fire that he talks about So you can imagine that this would be a low blow to these people that thought that they were already there, already saved. In fact, far superior than others that were not. But it's a hard message. But it is a true message. And in essence, it's like saying if you're not ready, you're not the people of God, you're not part of the kingdom of God, then you're just like an outsider, like a Gentile. And that was this message. He gave it to him straight up and in doing so fulfilled the prophecy of God. And here's how it was prophesied in Isaiah 43 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The idea that things are not straight. And it's, it's John the Baptist way of saying uh, through this prophetic word, you're, you're crooked and you need to be straight. You're too high and you need to be low. Before you can receive the king, before you can receive the comfort of the Lord. And this message brought conviction to some. And they repented. But that's how he got them ready. For the king. You know, there's much there's similarities in ministry today. In essence, I've, I've read where a pastor's job is to prepare people for the king. Prepare people for the second coming. Because Jesus is coming back. And I and I trust that through the preaching of God's word, that's as a pastor, that's where my heart is. I I want Christ to come back and find this group of people who have their hearts and minds and wills completely trusting in the the sacrifice of Christ and the victorious life of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Because that's how we're prepared. To meet him through that repentance and trust. We'll get to the trust part later. That's what Jesus is going to teach us. We repent from our sin and do what we we 100% completely trust in the Lord. So there's this message. And how about the ministry? So we've seen this. Uh, I don't know. I think of John the Baptist a little bit of a, a Grizzly Adams type figure. For you young folks, you're like Grizzly Adams. What the um, Grizzly Adams, you know, he was a kind of a nature guy. He lived out in the wilderness and so forth. Um, so what, what about his ministry? Did anybody really take this guy serious with his diet, with his leather belt? By the way, I'm halfway there. I got the leather belt. Um, and with, with his harsh, harsh message and his simplistic lifestyle, did anybody take him serious? Was his ministry at all fruitful? Yeah, it's actually very fruit, fr- fruitful, even though it was counterintuitive to set a man in the wilderness, to set him up really for ministerial failure. It was ministerial success. As a matter of fact, verse five says Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This simple message, two point sermon was hitting home and they were coming to the river. They listened and they repented so that this herald had an an amazing impact for the the kingdom of God and the king. Some rejected him, but many received him, even though he stepped on their toes. He drew quite a crowd. And so uh, this man who was named after what he did baptized people had a very, very successful ministry. So if you're young, you're thinking about, I'd like to be in the ministry someday, you can use John the Baptist as your paradigm of success. Go out in the desert, dress really old fashioned utilitarian, have a strange diet, speak a hard message, guaranteed success. Surprised there hadn't been a Christian bestseller written about it yet. Well, why is he the only one with such success that is called a baptizer? Why aren't there more baptizers if this was such a big thing in that day mentioned throughout the scripture? Well, in reality, this is actually something new that God was doing. It was something new really for the Jewish people because the Jewish people at that time that that getting baptized wasn't a part of their uh, their faith and their practice. Now, what was a part, as you know from the Old Testament, that God instituted were lots of ceremonial washings. That's how you prepared yourself. They were uh, symbolic of purification processes, and so everybody that came before the Lord, if you were in the temple, you had to wa- you had to wash your hands. You had to the priests had to take ceremonial baths. They had to do many, many different washings just to even be prepared to come. And minister to the Lord at all, and all these ceremonial washings painted the picture of how sinful man is, and yet how holy God is. So you just got to keep washing and keep washing. The idea is, I know you just washed, but then you got to wash again because you've you've defiled yourself since the last time you've washed, and so it's constant sacrifices, constant washings. But this is different. This is baptism. It's not a ceremonial washing. It's more of a one-time thing baptism wasn't really a part of their practice or their life. This is something that really has never happened before in Israel because it represents a total conversion, a total act of repentance where you were headed in one direction and you're not you're no longer going in that direction it's not a ceremonial washing. Washington, which says, well, we're the people of God and this is what we need to do to to stay before the face of God. This is more of a total radical uh, renouncing of sin and renouncing of worldly ways so that you can be brought up in the newness of life, as we would say at our baptisms. And this was a hard thing because the only baptisms that the Jewish people really were accustomed to, and they did have baptisms. But the the times that they had baptisms were when the Gentiles, the people that were far off, the people that were not God's people, said, I want to identify with you. I want to be a part of your believing community. I want to forsake my idols and my culture, my way of life, and I want to worship your God, the one and only God. I see him as the true God, and I want to be a part of this. And. It was the Gentiles that would be baptized because it was a total break off. It was a entirely new thing for them. And that's what was required. And it was that it was the symbolism of somebody who was not at all fit for the kingdom of God, but had made that decision to break away from things that are displeasing to God and follow the Lord. So there's a sense in which these Jews that are getting baptized, it's really radical because... It's equivalent to saying I'm not really a true child of God. I see that I need to be converted. I see that the things that I was trusting in uh, are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. My heart is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. So hardcore John had this hardcore message and, and was asking for hardcore conversion. And they came and they did it. They confessed. That's the power of God who enlightened Their hearts. So as we wind down from this. Some things that we can take home. One thing that we see clearly. And John was calling them away from. Is their dependence upon their godly heritage. Part of repentance. And part of uh, being baptized. Is renouncing any kind of false security. And one of the things that they had to leave behind. And not trust in. Was the. Godly heritage, this idea that I'm a child of Abraham's, therefore I'm saved, I'm in, can't get any closer to God than me because of that. And these things have to be renounced so that we trust in Christ alone. And I know that even today it might be something that the church struggles with post-resurrection. Because perhaps sometimes we're just we're raised in the church and therefore we just assume, well, I'm a child of God because I was raised in the church. My parents made me go to church every Sunday. I sang the songs. I took the communion bread. I was on this team or that. I helped them set up chairs and tables. I was a part of the the covenant life. So sure. I mean, I look just like everybody else. Why wouldn't I go to heaven? My parents are very godly and righteous people. And that has, that's a false security. Everybody has to do their own repenting. Everybody has to see their hearts. That even that godly heritage, although being a child of the covenant, gives you opportunities that the people that don't go to church and don't have godly parents never have. They don't have that. So you're very blessed and it's God's grace in your life that you're constantly exposed to the gospel of grace. But it is not a guarantee to salvation. And so we want to search our hearts and make sure that we weren't trusted in the same and in, in, in some kind of godly heritage. That no matter what we bring to the table falls short and that we are just in need of as in need of Christ, than even the Gentiles or the pagans, so to speak. So we have to renounce that family heritage thing and also our personal righteousness. Baptism is an admission. That though we may sincerely strive, genuinely with a clean heart, strive to keep God's law, that we still fall short. Uh, I think sometimes we get the impression that if we're sincere or genuine, then we've arrived and God accepts that work or that act of righteousness. It's not our sincerity or genuine. Uh, acts of righteousness that get us to heaven or make us fit because as sincere as we may be, it still falls short. You see, even our genuineness, our sincerity, but I really mean it, but I really want it. That even falls short. So what are you left with in and of yourselves? Nothing. So what then what do you turn to? Then you turn to Christ. Christ. Eternity turn to the Christ that we sang about, we glory in the cross. We don't glory in our own self-righteousness or the things that we do. And here's something that happens within even conservative Christian circles. We, we come into the kingdom of heaven through true repentance and we are truly converted and we change our ways and then the power of the Holy Spirit he lives in us and he brings forth good works and and we find ourselves being able to accomplish spiritual things and understand God's word in a way that we never could when we were lost and blind and somewhere along the way because we have been by God's grace spiritually successful I guess you'd say we start trusting in our own accomplishments we start bringing them to the table. Man, I've mastered the devotional thing. I, I haven't missed one in three years. I've mastered my servitude to the church. Whenever they need help, I'm there to do it. And we, we have this tendency to bring it to the table. And and maybe not on purpose, but we start trusting in our own spiritual maturity. And Jesus is going to tell us that when the king, when we start hearing his voice in Matthew, he's going to say, Ooh, you are on dangerous, in dangerous territory. When your mind starts thinking that way, it has to be all of Christ, Christ alone that we trust in, even as believers, because the good works that we produce are just the fruit of his grace in us. We can never rely on these things. You take Christ out of the equation and we sink to the bottom. He is the breath of life. He is that which makes things beautiful out of nothingness, out of dust. Let's just imagine that John preached a one point sermon. I want everybody to get or the king is coming. So get ready. The king is coming. Get ready. That's all he preached. And he didn't say what it meant to get ready or how to get ready. And that is repent because your heart's filled with sin. So he just says, guys, the king is coming. Get ready. Now, what do you think God's people would do? Man, finally, we sang this morning. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The promised Messiah. God has sent him. And here he is. Let's celebrate. Strike up the band. Fire up the grills. Because the God's... God's king, God's conqueror is finally going to set us free from those no good stinking rotten pagans that have been ruling over us. And I want to have them get the barbecue going so I can watch them burn (laughs) because that's what our king is going to do. He's going to set us free. Finally, we're going to we're going to be at the top again. So that's how they would prepare. Before I got saved. If someone would have told me, Paul, now I had, I had a knowledge of God. I had faith, you know, you know, uh, Christ is supposed to come back again. Yeah, he's coming. He's coming in your lifetime. He's coming very, very soon. You know what I would have thought? Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm, that's fine with me. I believe in God. And uh, if he wants to come back, that's great. I'm I'm not scared because, uh, I mean, after all, I'm just a little bit better than some other people I can think of. I haven't done these bad things. And I can just about guarantee you that if somebody said that to me, I would think that I was ready. But here's the difference. Somebody preached the gospel to me. And he said, here's what the Bible says about whether you're ready or not. Have you repented? Because your heart is filled with sin. And you don't judge yourself according to your peers. You judge yourself according to God's holy, perfect word and holy character. And when you stand against that, you are not ready. And the only way you can be ready is to repent, to humble yourself. to, To see that God's word is true. And to change your ways. And then love Him more than you love your sin. That's how you're ready. And it's it's an act of grace. Now, fortunately, um, God withheld His second coming, at least for now. And by His grace, He beckoned me into the kingdom and opened my eyes to my sin. And I repented we want to be careful about singing, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. If our hearts are not ready, we don't want to sing those words because we're not ready to look at God face to face because we got junk in our heart that keeps us out, that keeps us in the circle of damnation. No matter what little acts that look good to the common man, we have not removed ourselves from that. So this tough message preached by this tough guy, John, he was the one that heralded it. And you know it cost him his head, literally. But because of his willingness, because of his obedience, many souls repented and confessed to their sin and were brought into the kingdom of God. So here's how I have to close because um, I've entitled it, No One Greater some of you are thinking i can't believe you're ending this part and you hadn't even said anything about the no one greater when that's the title of this little series how could jesus say that there was no one greater at that time than john the baptist what was so great about him when you look at him he is just the opposite of greatness right he's kind of strange there's nothing normal or great about him he doesn't have this great education doesn't dress real snazzy Done living this, all the signs of worldly success do not surround him. So, what's so great about him? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, it means that in terms of his privilege and his proximity to the king, there is no one greater. He's the last Old Testament prophet. And all the Old Testament prophets before him said, He's coming. He's coming. Lift your weary souls because God's king is coming, the Messiah, and he is going to deliver you. There will be rejoicing in the camp. Once again, he's coming. Only John the Baptist could say he's coming and he's here and there he is. All the other prophets would have given anything to be able to do that, to have that place of ministry. But because of his opportunity and his 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 placement in history, there was none greater, because no one else got to serve God in that way. And that helps us understand the rest of that verse, Matthew 11:11. 11, 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's just the first part. Here's the second: Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So in in proximity and privilege, John never saw the death and resurrection. We have. We're on this side of it, of that history. We have a different message, or even a more powerful message to proclaim than John the Baptist, because we can say he came and he's coming again. And so like the John the Baptist, we have a message and it's very similar. We want people to be prepared for the second coming. We want to be prepared for the second coming. So it's a message. It's a it's a uh, encouragement to preach the gospel to our friends, to our families, to our loved ones. He really is coming back again. Are we ready? Here's how you get ready. You repent from your sins. People need to know I needed to know that had I not known that I would not have repented. Had you not known that, you would not have repented. People need to know it is a very, very loving thing to do to share the gospel message. Will we resolve to tell people about this awesome king? May God bless the preaching of his word.